0: Well, today we're going to wrap up our look at the letter to the church at, at Philippi, and next week, Keith is going to come and is going to help make it really practical in some, in some ways that I think you'll be very blessed by, and um, I know it's going to be an amazing, amazing time. But here in this passage, we're given a command that I find a little difficult. He says, do not be anxious about anything is anxiety a challenge for anybody besides me here today do you have any trouble being anxious well one of the keys to this because it's it's tough when he says do not be anxious about anything you know the first thing that comes to mind is how do i do that because anx- anxiety is like automatic it just happens in our thinking But there's there's a connection between verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, and the way he concludes this section with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is the way to have victory over anxiety is to place all of our trust and all of our commitment into Christ who gives us strength. He is the one that enables us to do it. And I want, to get, I want to start with a picture that I want to put in your minds That to allow it to run through your mind as we're looking at these verses together. Have any of you ever gotten on the wrong tram here in, in Prague? A, a few of us have done that. Now, you guys are from Denver, and I lived there for 20 years. It's a little difficult to get on the wrong light rail because there's... Well, it's expanded now, but there's really only one. So it's hard. You can get on it the wrong direction, but you can't really get on the wrong tram. Here in Prague, we have tram stops where there are just multiple trams. And if you're not paying attention uh, or if you're just a little slow, like I sometimes am mentally, it's easy to get on the wrong tram. And oftentimes when I've gotten on the wrong tram, it's, it's been after it took a turn, I wasn't expecting that all of a sudden I realized, I'm not where I thought I was. I'm in the wrong place. Now, if you get on the wrong tram, what do you have to do? You have to get off. Yeah, if you don't get back off that tram and onto the right one, you're never going to get where you're going. The same is true with our thoughts if we think about our thoughts, in, in, because those trams, we're not the one driving it, right? It kind of runs on its own track, its own course. And our minds tend to do the same thing. And so we have to choose where we're going to place our minds, and that's what the Scripture is, is instructing us to do. God is giving us um, some steps to find peace in our thought life. Now, anxiety is something that is very real, and it can be incredibly powerful, It can be debilitating. And the first thing that I want to share with us is that Jesus does understand your anxiety. Now, I don't believe he experienced it in the same way that we do because he didn't sin. He kept this command about not being anxious about anything. But there's no one who endured greater stress, greater agony, greater grief, which oftentimes are the triggers of our anxiety, than Jesus Christ. So he truly understands where you and I are. And anxiety is one of those things that is emotional, it's psychological, it's physical, it has a lot of components. It is also spiritual. And so when we look at it in our own heart and life, we need to look at it in each of those areas. And um, the medical profession approaches the very real and very common issue of anxiety um, with some instructions and some ways to help us deal with it. In fact, they give some warnings about some signs and symptoms that can indicate uh, an anxiety disorder that is going to need some medical treatment as well as other components to, to be a part of that. God is a God who has given us ways to deal with things physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And we need to address each of those areas. But here's some of the signs, and maybe, maybe some of these will prompt some thoughts in your own heart. Here's some of the signs and symptoms that the medical profession lists for an, an anxiety disorder. Are you constantly tense, worried, or on edge? Does your anxiety interfere with your work, with school, or with family responsibilities? Are you plagued by fears that you know are are irrational, but for some reason you just can't help but focus on them? Do you believe that something bad will happen if certain things are not done in a certain way? that one's a a really important um, marker. Do you avoid everyday situations or activities because they can cause anxiety? Do you experience sudden, unexpected attacks of heart-pounding panic? Do you feel like danger and catastrophe are around every corner? Those are signs of severe anxiety. And and they come with some symptoms, some emotional symptoms, feelings of apprehension or dread, um, anticipating the worst a restlessness, uh, trouble concentrating, oftentimes trouble sleeping, feeling tense and jumpy, or irritable, or feeling like your mind has just gone blank, which usually happens about halfway through any sermon that I try to preach. So maybe that's just anxiety. I don't know, but anxiety is is more than a feeling. It, it's also a product of the of our body's fight or flight reflex. There there are physical things that happen. When we experience overwhelming anxiety. We can have our heart can pound, we can sweat, um, we can get headaches, our stomach can be upset with nausea or dizziness, um, shortness of breath, muscle tension, tremors, twitches. All these things can be signs physically of anxiety. And oftentimes we need medical help to be able to help deal with some of those symptoms. That anxiety is not just an emotional response, it is also something that is spiritual. And that's what the scripture is addressing here today, is he's giving us steps so that we don't have to succumb to the weight and the pressure of anxiety. It is a spiritual condition And the Bible deals very directly by saying, do not be anxious about anything. It is a command. And if God gives us a command, then he also will provide a way for us to be able to keep it if we know Christ. He is the strength that enables us to have victory over anxiety. And he gives us some points. But in order for us to really understand it, we need to... Get a clear picture of what it is. I want you to think about what is the root, spiritually, of anxiety or or worry in our lives. What is it that is causing these emotional and physical and spiritual symptoms to rise to the surface when we feel anxious? I believe that the root of anxiety is control the reason I am anxious or you are anxious is because I'm not in control. And when I'm not in control, that frightens me because I'm not able to, to give direction to where I want the circumstances of my life to go. Now, at least for me, that's convicting when I begin to look at that and understand that the spiritual root of my anxieties is, is my desire to be in control. It's convicting because I know that it reflects the level of faith in my heart and the level of obedience in my life. We aren't supposed to be in control. It's not our job to be in control. And here's why it's... It's so stressful. When you break it down and really look at it, when I'm trying to be in control, I am trying to be God. I am trying to take his place. Not consciously, but subconsciously, we are saying, God, I do not trust you, so my mind is gonna try to take control. Is it any wonder that we are stressed? We're trying to carry something we were never designed for something that is far beyond our abilities. And we need to understand that ultimately, it is an attack of the enemy to get us to believe his original lie. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, his temptation was, you will be like God. Now, the inference was that you will Know both good and evil. They already knew good, but they did not yet experience sin or evil. But his temptation was for them to take control, to take of that which God had said, "This is not for you. This is reserved. Don't eat of the tree of the, um, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not yours." And he tempted them to take control in their own hands. And that's what he's tempting us to do as well, to try to take control. But we need to understand that it is an attack of the enemy. And it is often accompanied by our own selfishness and sinfulness, wanting to exert control. But we need to remember some very important truths. Only God has the right and the power to control. He is completely independent and he doesn't need any of my help. God also, another component of our anxiety oftentimes is what others do. And what we tend to do and become anxious over is judging one another. But only God has the right to judge all things, to determine standards, and to reject those who are disobedient to those standards. Thirdly, only God deserves all praise, worship, and approval from all that he has created. You see, we are stressed and anxious when we try to take control, when we seek to exercise judgment that we have no right to, and when we make life about ourselves and we want um, it to be focused upon us instead of focused upon God. Those are the roots of anxiety from a sin and spiritual standpoint. We must continually surrender control to God and trust His plan and His purpose. We must remember that God alone is judge and we're not to judge one another. And we must remember that God alone deserves all praise. Now, I told you it's convicting for me and perhaps it's convicting for you, but that conviction is a good thing because if we can expose the spiritual root, then we also have a way to begin to deal with it and ask the Lord to bring change and transformation. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to feel like I have to be in control. Instead, I can do some things that will enable me to trust God more and more. And as I trust him... He promises to surround me with his peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. But here's what happens in our minds. Think about something you've been anxious about recently, something that's, that's weighed heavenly, uh, heavily, not heavenly, heavily on your, on your mind or on your heart. And, and, and here's, what, here's what happens. At least this is what happens to me. Since I'm not in control, I feed the fear. With our minds, I begin to chase down every possible outcome of a given situation, um, even though most of those will never happen. I, I chase all of them at once, every conceivable outcome. And the ones that are most frightening, those are the ones I focus on. This is what's going to happen. And it grips me. And, and I begin to feed on the fear And what happens is, as I feed on the fear, there's a transition that happens where the fear then begins to feed on me. And I begin to worry because I'm not in control. I can't change the outcome of this circumstance. And I'm afraid. Now, it helps to get a clear picture of this word uh, anxiety or its synonym, worry. And I'm gonna use worry because it, um, it's more than just the medical condition. The worry part is clearly the spiritual sin aspect where I am not trusting God, but I'm choosing to be so focused on it. Now, the word worry is an interesting word. It actually is a, a German word. Um, it comes from the word vergen. And here's what it means. Here's the picture. In fact, the, oh, not quite that one. Is there one before it? Go back one slide. Okay, never mind. I thought I had a picture. Oh, never, I I forgot it. Okay, we're gonna get to that one. Here's what it means. It literally means to grab by the throat with your teeth and strangle, okay? It's not a very good picture. It's the picture of a wolf attacking its prey and grabbing it by its throat to squeeze the life out of it. That's what it comes from. Now, in English, we, we have this, this word, um, or this phrase that dates back into the 1600s about a dog worrying a bone. He's attacking it. What happens when, when a dog gets a bone? I don't know. How many of you are dog people? Okay, does that mean the rest of you are cat people? Okay, I don't know. I, don't know, I, have, I have no illustrations for cats. So, Okay. What happens when you give this to your dog? What happens when you give this to Baxi? He, he grabs it and starts chewing it. Okay, does he stop? No. Okay, Wh- when will he stop chewing this bone? <coughs> Maybe midnight. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, if you give it to him first thing in the morning, he's gonna go at it forever and ever and ever, and, and he may eventually put it down because he gets tired. Same way with with the dogs that we've had. But usually, they're not done until it's gone. And, And that's the picture of worry. Only here's the reality. You and I are the bone. We're not the one chewing. We're the one being chewed on by this fear and anxiety in our heart and our life. And it's destructive. That's why God says, do not be anxious. He wants to set us free. He doesn't want our life to be controlled by fear and stress and anxiety. So he gives us some very um, pointed instructions, some steps that we can take so that, um, that we don't feed on fear to the point where it begins to feed on us, but instead we live by faith and find our joy in God and it all stems from giving control back over to God. And so here in this passage in verses 4 through 13, I think there are at least six steps of finding peace with God. And the first one is what our whole series has been about, rejoicing, choosing joy. We actively praise God for who he is and what he's already done. Secondly, we are to remember. We remember the Lord is at hand. Thirdly, we're to release our fear to God. Do not be anxious about anything. Fourthly, is a request. We are to pray and petition the God who is in control. And then fifthly, we have to reset our thinking. We have to choose a different tram, a different track. And then sixthly, we rest in God's power, his presence, and his character because we can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me? Oftentimes, that verse is quoted out of context, but here we see in its context, it's it's ultimately is about finding uh, its ultimate meaning is about finding contentment, finding peace, and victory over um, over anxiety in our life. So let's look at this first one: rejoice. Um, and we've looked at this a, a, a fair amount, so I'm not gonna to spend too much time on it, but it, it means to choose joy and to actively praise God for who he is and what he's already done. And, and here's one of the things I was thinking about recently that I was really powerful. Do you realize that rejoicing is the one thing you and I do that defies the second law of thermodynamics? And some of you are going... What's the second law of thermodynamics? The second law of thermodynamics is that everything moves from a state of order to disorder. It is all breaking down. We see that in our world. We see that when you get 55 like I am. You see that every morning when you look in the mirror uh, or when you even just try to get out of bed. You realize that you are moving from a state of order to disorder with increasing speed. But rejoicing is just the opposite. It's like it is the the mythical perpetual source of energy. When we praise God, it produces energy. It produces life spiritually. This is one of the reasons why what we are called to do for all eternity is to worship. And and sometimes our picture in our minds is that that's going to be boring. That is going to be life-giving. It's not... You know, sitting on a cloud with a, with a harp or, or whatever that sometimes the pictures we have from, from the media, it's about life-giving energy that's pointed towards God and from God. And it produces more and more energy. Here in this passage, as we look at it, rejoicing protects us from false teaching. Rejoicing remembers our true citizenship is in heaven, no matter what the circumstances that are going on in our world. Rejoicing eliminates the competition of of political strife and disagreement. Rejoicing makes makes us more and more like Jesus because we're able to take hold of what he took hold of us for, to make him our, our own because he's made us his own. Rejoicing brings reconciliation. Rejoicing transforms our minds and relieves anxiety. And rejoicing is something that when we're done, he says, and again I say rejoice. Keep doing it because it will transform it. If we skip every other step in our steps to peace with God, don't skip this one. Because praising God, rejoicing, over who he is and what he has already done is life-giving. And it is always the right response. Well, secondly, if we continue in the, in the verse, we look in verse five, it says, the Lord is at hand. Do you not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, in all fairness, we need to understand that the Lord is at hand, is part of this sentence, do not be anxious about anything. They have to go together. In order for us to not be anxious, we have to remember that the Lord is with us. God who is in control is right here, right with you, right now. And he not only is with us, but if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, he is for you. Remembering that truth in and of itself, begins to relieve some of the weight of anxiety because we're beginning to transfer the ownership of it to the one who is in control. We're remembering he's with us. God promises to give us peace when we recognize him for who he truly is, absolute, all-authority, God. God. And he sets a protective perimeter around our souls, around our hearts, and around our minds with his presence when we remember that he is at hand. Thirdly, though, we're to release our fear to God. Do not be anxious about anything. In order to do that, we have to intentionally trust God and give him control of the circumstance we're concerned about. We're not in control. And ultimately, that is a good thing because we don't have the power to change anything except for ourselves. And even that, we need God's power to enable. We must choose to release the illusion of control from our hands and place it firmly where it belongs in God's. We choose how we're going to respond to anxiety. Charles Swindoll has some, some wise words for us in his book, Strengthening Your Grip. He said, words can never adequately, adequately convey the incredible impact of our attitude towards life. The longer I live, the more convinced I become that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% of how we respond to it. I believe the single most significant decision I can make on a day-to-day basis is the choice of my attitude. It is more important than my past, than my education, my bankroll, my success or failures, fame or pain or what other people think of me or say about me or my circumstances or my position. Attitude keeps me going or cripples my progress. It fuels my fire or it assaults my hope. And when my attitude is right, There is no barrier too high, no valley too deep, no dream too extreme, no challenge too great for me. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what we do have control of is choosing what we're going to do in our response to our circumstances. Whether we're going to choose to worry and have anxiety or whether we're going to choose to trust God who is good. And who has promised that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that all things are good or all things are pleasant. Bad things happen, really bad things happen to believers, to those who are faithful, those who are obedient. There is all kinds of injustices. We do injustices to one another. It doesn't prevent those from happening but God promises that when we place our trust in him instead of trying to have control over it in our own anxiety he will make it something that is for his glory and ultimately for our good even if we can't quite see what that looks like. So we have to choose. Are we going to give control to God or are we going to try to hang on to it? And he gives us some ways to do that. That's the next part. It's the request that we make. We release control and say, Lord, I have been on this tram of thinking and I need to change. I've been trying to control this in my thoughts. I've been so focused on it and I'm giving it back to you because you are the only one who can do something about it. And then we begin to make our requests. He tells us that we are to to both pray pray and offer petition or supplication in the ESV version with thanksgiving. And they're they're slightly different things. Prayer itself is intentionally entering into God's presence. Prayer is not asking for something. Prayer is going to God himself. Does that make sense? It's an atmosphere where he's there. It's intentionally saying, Lord, I am coming into your presence, and what my intention is is that I'm going to leave this burden I've been carrying in your presence, and not pick it back up on my way back out. I'm coming into your presence. This is God's cure for our anxiety. We are troubled about many things. We can be troubled about our work, our family, our future. We can be troubled about finances, our purpose, our happiness. But God invites you to place your requests about these things before him. And the promise is, of the verse is that the peace of God will keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting that it, the verse doesn't say that we necessarily will receive what we ask for. Sometimes we, take, we go and we make a request of God and we say, Lord, I'm really worried about this, I'm concerned about this, and, and I'm giving it to you. Would you do this? And that's not what he does. But that's not what he promises. He promises if we let him hold it, he will work it out in a way that is for his honor and for our good. But we have to trust him. You see, ultimately, this is the one place where we can exercise faith in an incredible way. How we choose to respond to the stresses and, and strains upon our life is an opportunity for faith. When we look through the scriptures and we look at the story after story of individuals, the ones that we celebrate are the ones whose life was totally out of control and yet totally trusted God. We think of Joseph. Who is sold into slavery by his brothers. And then, as he begins to be faithful, another hit comes and um, he's serving faithfully in um, Potiphar's court. And Potiphar's wife makes a pass at him and he, he does the right thing. He flees and runs away and ends up in prison. You know, bad situation, got even worse but he took that back to the lord and spends time again in prison because where god ultimately was taking him was something far greater and that's why at the end of it he's able to look back and say to his brothers what you meant for evil god meant for good you see that's the response of faith he had every reason to feel incredible amount of stress and anxiety Everything in his world had been turned upside down. But God, who is good, had a good plan, a redeeming plan for him, and he does for you and I as well. He doesn't promise that he will give us our requests. He promises he will give us himself and his peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, what we ask for is not what we need, and so therefore, we need to trust that to the Lord as well. When we enter into his presence in prayer it is an atmosphere of pr- of trust of where I come into God's presence and say lord I trust you that you know what is best whatever the answer is I'm coming to you with that attitude then we're able to make our requests because we need to remember whose presence we are in that he is the one who is in control he is the one who is in authority now, let me give you a practical thing that came, came up, at least in our family this week. Our son, Micah, has a, um, a new, newer job, and he's a driver for a company, and, and, and he was really stressed and concerned this week because his company is making him sign a document that basically says anything whatsoever that goes wrong with the truck, with the packages, with anything, it's his fault, and they can fine him up to $1,000 for each incident. Not really the kind of paper he was thrilled, you know, because $1,000 to him is huge. And, you know, and he's, he's fearful about it. And, and he doesn't necessarily know how much, I mean, he, he likes the job, he likes the work, but he's not sure how much he trusts it because where he works, he says, Dad, uh, there's about three or four people hired and fired every week. He says it's just huge turnover. And so, you know, there's, there's anxiety going with that. And, and I don't know that I can trust my bosses. You know, because it's really vague. It doesn't say if you do something that's negligent, then we have a right to, to, to fine you this. It's, there's virtually no stipulations. And as Becky and I were talking with him this week, what we encourage him to do is, son, you need to understand what you're, you do. If you choose to sign it, you ask the Lord to give you wisdom and direction about what you should do, if you should seek a different job, if you should sign this. Uh, you're not signing it because you have trust in them. You're signing it because you have trust in God. Because God is the one who sets authorities in place. And he's the one who can remove them as well. So part of it is changing our thinking to understanding that my trust is not in another person. Um, they're, They're flawed, they're sinful. My trust is in God who is in control of the circumstances. And that takes some of the weight off because it's like okay, Lord, I'm trusting in you. Well, with that, we're able to make our petition, which means that we intentionally give the concern to God, that we actively ask him to work in the midst of this in the way that will best honor his name and work for our good. Even if that good isn't what we want, if it produces in us a greater likeness to Christ, isn't it worth it? if it enables greater spiritual fruit, if it works in a way so that other people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that's what we want. That's what I want. We ask him to carry it and trust that he really does work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, to kind of make sure that we really understand this, remember, Paul is sitting in prison And he's writing this letter from prison to a church at Philippi where something amazing happened in prison. Maybe maybe you'll remember the story. If not, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, verse 25. This is what happened at uh, Philippi, the church in Philippi. Paul had gotten arrested and thrown in prison um, because he was proclaiming the gospel He was doing the right thing, and doing the right thing led to some very difficult circumstances. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 16. Paul is in prison. About midnight, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. They were rejoicing. Okay, so he's practicing what he's going to write back to the church at Philippi many years ahead of time. He's praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights. They couldn't flip a switch like we could, so they had to go into the darkness of the prison with lanterns, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, Paul had learned to be content, to trust God in his circumstances, even in prison, even when it was the worst thing you could imagine happening to him. His focus was on something greater. When the doors flew open, he didn't flee. He knew that God had a purpose. He he was listening to the Holy Spirit. It wasn't telling him to, to run. It was telling him to wait. And he waited, and God had a divine appointment with the jailer, who became one of the, he and his household became part of the very beginnings of the church at Philippi, the church he's writing to many years later from prison. And do you notice there's nowhere in this letter where Paul seems to be praying, God, would you get me out of prison? He's not asking for God to change the circumstances. He's trusting the Lord through them. You see, he's not trying to be in control, but he's giving that. To the Lord. He was able to see that God has something greater in store than just to get out of the pain of the circumstance. He learned to trust God when he couldn't understand the why of his difficulty. And it is with that background that he is writing do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication or petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Well, here he gives us pray about it, and now after you've presented your requests, you need to reset your thinking because just like the trams, we tend to run on tracks in our thinking. And I I love this picture um, because... You know, sometimes what happens is the tram itself finds itself on the wrong track. And that, what they have to do because the auto switch isn't working is get out and manually make that turn so the, so the tram will go the right direction. We have to do the same thing with our thinking. We have to be very intentional about the things we choose to think about because if I leave it on my own, I'm going to take off in a different direction. And my chances are, so will you. There's a danger in us fixating. Our minds get in a rut. They'll run on a track of their own, and they'll run out of control unless we're intentional and reset our thinking. And so he gives us here in this passage some tests of right thinking. Look what he says in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Set your mind on these kind of things. And, and there's seven tests here of right thinking to make sure that we're evaluating where our thoughts are going to see if we're trying to take control or whether we have placed our faith in God who is in control. So, think about your thoughts and simply ask this, of the thought that you're wrestling with, a place where there's anxiety in your life, is what I'm thinking true? Is it a fact or is it fear? Is it all the information or is it a half-truth? Maybe even better yet, what does God think about this? Because he is truth himself. The scripture contains truth because it's the living word, but he is the truth. And when we fill our minds with scripture, then we understand God's thoughts, and it can help train our thinking to be in alignment with the truth of who he is and what he does. Secondly, Is what I'm thinking honorable? This means noble or morally attractive. These are the things that are given dignity and holiness. They're things to be treated with respect and special treatment. Most of the things in, in our world are common and not worthy of honor. But the things of God are honorable is what i'm thinking just and it means righteousness both towards god and towards others and one of the questions that i that i try to ask myself when i'm eventually get to the point where the lord brings conviction on my heart to think and examine my thinking is how would i feel if i was under the same condemnation or judgment i'm placing on others that's the justice Am I reflecting him correctly? The next test is what I'm thinking pure. Our minds are to be centered on things that are unpolluted, untainted by the world. I mean, think about it. How many of you would drink water if it had just 1% radioactive waste in it? I mean, 99% of it's good. Just that one little bit that might get you. Same's true in our thoughts. We need to ask the Lord to cleanse and change our thoughts. Paul warns us in other places in the scripture that, you know, our minds, they tend and they drift towards lust, towards hatred, towards jealousy, envy, selfishness, ambition, fits of rage. Rage. Is that where my thoughts are going, or are my thoughts focused on what is pure? You see, this is what reveals what James talks about in the motives of our heart. James, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong or impure motives that you may spend what you get on yourself. Are my motives pure? I need to evaluate that and ask the Lord to cleanse me where they're not. Is what I'm thinking lovely? I really like this one. Lovely has the idea of of something that's Admirable. Um, ultimately, the, the way I like to think of it is it's something that you would put on display. Would I want this thought put on display in um, the window of a shop? You know, like as you, as you go down Vaklowska uh, Namaste and you see the, the different shops that are there and they have the window displays, what if that was my thought? Would I want this thought put on display? Is it lovely? Is it, you know, is it fashionable? Does it look good? or not? If I wouldn't want it on display, if I wouldn't want others to know it, then chances are there needs to be some change in my thinking. Next he says, is what I'm thinking commendable? Would my thoughts bless someone else? Would it build someone else up? Or are my thoughts tearing them down? We are called as the body of Christ to build one another up. Is it excellent? Does it inspire godliness and goodness? Or is it destructive? And ultimately, is it worthy of praise? Does my thoughts lend to thanksgiving and to honor and to worship to God? Or are they taking me into more and more of myself? Now ultimately, these virtues that are listed here point Not just to um, values, but they point to a person. These are all descriptions of who Jesus Christ is. What he's saying are my thoughts like Jesus. You see, are they true? Jesus Christ is the truth. Are they honorable? Jesus has gained all honor, all glory, all authority. Are they just? Jesus himself is the judge of all. Is it pure? Jesus Christ lived an absolutely sinless, perfectly pure life. And when we allow him to live his life in us and through us, he purifies us and cleanses us of sin so that we can reflect him and become more and more like him. Is it lovely? There is nothing in all of the universe more beautiful than our Savior because his love willingly took upon himself all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt so we could be set free and have peace with God. Is it commendable? Jesus is worthy of all praise. His love, his holiness, his greatness is our example of joy. Ultimately, what these are are facets of a spirit-controlled mind that's focused on Jesus. What would Jesus think? Maybe that's the easiest way, shortest way. I probably should have just said that once and sat down, and it would have been a whole lot shorter and more, more powerful. Do my thoughts reflect what Jesus would think? If not, I'm trying to take control. And I need him to change my thinking. And I need to choose to go in a different direction. And here's God's promise Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. See how that fits together? The reason that there's peace is because I'm not trying to control it. I'm placing all my trust in God who is good and who is all-powerful and who can work in the midst of these circumstances and I'm trusting him and because I'm trusting him, he gives me peace. And the way that I'm able to keep trusting him is to keep my mind fixed or set on him. And then we have the promise of power that comes with it, that we rest in his power, his character, his presence, it is then we can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that what you want? If so, keep your mind fixed upon Christ. Allow him to change your thinking, change my thinking, And we will know his peace. When we rejoice in God, when we remember that he is here right now with us, when we release control to him and request um, our prayers by going into his presence, we trust that he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then we can endure hardship and rejection, and criticism, and hurt, and uncertainty, and every other challenge because the God of the universe is with us. He is our peace and our power to live above the fear and the anxiety that threatens to strip life away from us. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you would take that promise and you would sink it deep into our hearts and our lives. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would examine our thoughts, starting with my own. Lord, you've, be- you've brought so, so many areas of my own thought life into conviction of it, seeing where I've been trying to be in control, and Lord, I just confess that and release that back to you. And I... I pray that for my brothers and sisters in this room as well. Lord, that today will be a day where you transform our thinking to where we're not consumed by fear. We're not captured by worry. But Lord, we're able to trust in you because you are a God who has already proven that you are all powerful and you are all good. Help us to fix our minds on you, to change our thought patterns, to examine our thoughts, Lord, and and see what is of self, what is of our own desire to control, and Lord, what is being released into you and living by faith. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.